Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Death was still giving him bad dreams, as his household accountant noted after extra alms giving by the king. But the cause of those bad dreams was almost certainly not regret for a knife wielded in rage. John had died on the 13th of September at Perth, and although it is probable that Edward was at Perth at the time, the source of this story, the Scottish Chronicon, is very doubtful. It was written about 25 years later by John Forden, a clerk from Aberdeen, which Edward had just burnt to the ground. We therefore have to accept that the truth remained hidden from all Edward's English companions for 25 years before being leaked to an embittered and relatively unimportant Scottish clerk. Sir Thomas Grey, writing while a prisoner in Scotland in 1355, stresses that John died a good death, which probably implies fortitude in the face of an illness sent by God. Most 14th century English chroniclers record the death. Not one of them states he was murdered. Barnes believed that he died of a fever brought on by his military exertions. There is little room for doubt that Forden's story of Edward stabbing John to death was not a rare fragment of a hideous truth, but a choice piece of Scottish propaganda. An inspiration for the theme of the story may be found in Edward's adopted role of Sir Lionel, for this Arthurian knight attempted to kill his brother, Sir Bors. In the wake of the destruction of Aberdeen, men from the town may have believed that Edward was so ruthless in destroying the land of which his sister was queen that he could have killed his own brother. Edward probably remained at Perth until the third day after his brother's death. He had sent his wardrobe ahead to Nottingham in readiness for the council to be held there, but still he lingered by the body of his brother. He seems still to have been at Perth on the 16th of September, This left him a mere eight days to reach Nottingham, more than 300 miles away. When he finally moved off, he hastened south at a breakneck speed. He entered his council chamber at Nottingham Castle on the 22nd of September, tired from a very long journey, distraught, and facing the gaunt faces of men who knew that the kingdom was facing imminent invasion. Worse, the Scots had been pricked into action by the French support, Andrew Murray was burning and levelling his own lands, in emulation of Edward at Aberdeen, to stop the English being able to station an army there. The isolated English castles were already under attack. In this climate, it is no wonder that the council granted Edward his taxes without question. Men were raised from the shires, an immense defensive army was conceived, and large sums of money were secured from the Bardi and Peruzzi banking houses as a means of paying troops. Edward summoned naval help from Bayonne. He even wrote to the King of Norway to request that the monarch refuse to supply ships to Philip. In doing so, he admitted that he was likely also to face the opposition of the Counts of Hainault and Gelderland, his relatives. Far from setting an example of perfect kingship, he now looked very beleaguered indeed. As it turned out, the invasion threat was more imagined than real. By the end of October, the large army ordered for the defence of the country could be sent home, and the naval contingents of the south coast could be safely directed to protect the merchant fleet heading to Gascony. They were to be replaced by ships raised from Great Yarmouth and 24 other ports. Further protection measures were made, including a repeated order to Bayonne to send ships and an order to protect the port of Dartmouth in Devon, and gradually the sense of fear calmed. 
but as it calmed in England, it grew in Gascony. In the Agenais, fear of attack became reality, as a French army was sent to assault Gascon outposts, and plans for the seizure of the whole Duchy of Aquitaine were contemplated. Philip was now writing to Edward, saying that he should expel Robert d'Artois from England, or rather send him to France in chains for judgment as an enemy of the French king. In Scotland, to which Edward had returned after the council at Nottingham, his rebuilding of Bothwell Castle was hampered by constant attacks from William Douglas. For Edward, the glories of war had turned into the long, bitter reproaches of diplomacy. It was a discomforting contrast to the glorious tournaments of the years after Mortimer's fall. Edward left Bothwell in mid-December and came south with his brother's embalmed body. Philippa travelled with him as far as Hatfield, where they spent Christmas together. Heavily pregnant, she remained at Hatfield while Edward went on with John's corpse to the tower, arriving on Friday the 10th of January. The next morning, he walked with it in a great solemn procession to St Paul's Cathedral, surrounded by clerics and citizens where it lay the night. The following day, Sunday, he attended Mass in its presence. After Mass, it was taken to Westminster Abbey. The next day, solemn exequies were celebrated by the Archbishop of Canterbury in the presence of the King and many earls, prelates and barons. Funeral feasts were arranged at Westminster and St Paul's. Finally, on Wednesday the 15th of January, John of Eltham was laid to rest in St Edmund's Chapel, Westminster. As a mark of respect, Edward commissioned one of two exceptionally fine alabaster effigies for his tomb. The other was for their father, to be incorporated in the tomb at Gloucester. The day after John was lowered into the floor of Westminster Abbey, Philippa gave birth to a second son, William of Hatfield. Edward responded to the good news by making a journey to Canterbury to give thanks at the Shrine of Becket. But beyond this, the birth of a second son was greeted with muted enthusiasm. The reason is not hard to find. The child was sickly and dead within weeks. Edward seems to have been disturbed by this, as he decided that his dead baby should not be buried in the family mausoleum at Westminster. Instead, he sent its corpse all the way to York Minster. Although grief for a lost newborn was, in medieval times, often less profound than today, it was another blow. God was not favouring Edward. He had lost his brother and now a son, and that was not the end of his worries. The French had attacked Portsmouth and Jersey, in Scotland, the rebels had won a series of victories against the under-resourced English garrisons. Bothwell Castle, only just repaired, was under attack and soon to be destroyed. It was as if Edward had never fought and won at Halidon Hill. His achievements were being undone. The winter had set in very cold and bad rumours were spreading. It was said that a calf was born with two heads and eight feet. A very bright comet was seen which darted forth its rays with terrible streams, as if a precursor of devastation. If Edward was a warrior of God, then God required something more from him than this. It is a telling sign that most chroniclers do not mention the birth, let alone the death, of his doomed baby. 6. The Vow of the Heron The Vow of the Heron is a political poem about Edward, written in the Low Countries in the mid-1340s. It relates how, in September 1338, Edward was sitting in his marble palace in London with his courtiers and ladies, girls and many other women around him. He was thinking about love and had no plans to make war when Count Robert d'Artois returned from a hunting expedition with a heron he had caught. Having had the heron plucked, stuffed and roasted, D'Artois had two girls carry the bird on a silver plate to Edward, accompanied by minstrels playing the veal and the gittern. D'Artois declared before all the court, I have caught a heron, the most cowardly bird there is, and therefore I will give it to the greatest coward alive, King Edward, the rightful heir of France, whose heart has clearly failed him, for he fears to maintain his claim to the throne. In the story, Edward was embarrassed, and red-faced replied, Since I am so accused, I swear on this heron that I am no coward, but that I will cross the sea within a year to claim what is mine. Having heard the king's promise, D'Artois smiled wickedly, and let the girls go forward to sing of sweet love-making to the king as the courtiers embraced their mistresses around the palace. This poem gives us a vivid glimpse of how Edward was imagined by his enemies at this time and in particular how he was seen in relation to the war. 
he was the sole protagonist. His warmongering could not even be excused by his leadership of a parliament which had resolved to take up arms. He personally decided to begin the conflict, and his cause was a selfish one, a frustrated claim to the throne of France and the shame of accusations of cowardice. In the story of the vow of the heron, the catalyst who turned this frustration into violence, Robert d'Artois, was a sinner, a heretic, and a traitor. Furthermore, Edward's decision was portrayed as being taken in the midst of a lascivious court in which nobles paraded their mistresses openly, flaunting their immoral behaviour before God. It all added up to a melange of vice, dishonour, and unworthiness. Considering the need for pro-French propaganda, especially in the small countries whose rulers wanted to persuade their people to support them in their alliances with King Philip, there is nothing particularly surprising in the story itself. What is surprising is that modern popular understandings of the causes of the war are largely based on it. In Queen Philippa's entry in the old Dictionary of National Biography, this vow was regarded as a real event, a chivalric ceremony in which Edward swore to make war. In 20th century classrooms, Edward was almost always portrayed as the guilty party on account of his dynastic ambitions and his claim to the Kingdom of France, his absurd claim, as the Encyclopaedia Britannica called it. However, as we have already seen, Edward was very cautious about the developing diplomatic situation and had proved scrupulous in his consultation with Parliament and his council. As scholars have universally acknowledged for the last 50 years, his war-related claim that Philip had illegally seized the throne of France cannot be treated separately from his claim to Aquitaine, which Philip now openly and directly threatened. When he finally did claim the French throne, it was principally a technical shift to permit the Flemish legally to renounce allegiance to Philip. In this way, we may see that Edward was not proceeding without parliamentary support. His decision to fight, while not encouraged by Parliament, was nevertheless ratified by it, and hostilities broke out long before Edward finally and irrevocably claimed the title King of France. The dynastic claim was a symptom of the conflict, not a root cause. In considering the events of 1337-40, Edward's dynastic ambitions are less important than Philip's dynastic vulnerability. When Edward's claim to the French throne had first been put forward during his minority, it had proved impossible to sustain it with any force. In addition, regardless of any legal claim or dynastic right, the French nobles preferred an exclusively French king to a part-English, part-French one. For the simple reason, it was better to have a head of state who would have to consider their interests before those of the English. Thus, Philip had become firmly established as the French king soon after his accession. Edward was in no position to risk a continental war in the early 1330s, and was well advised by his parliament in 1331 to seek a peaceful solution to his disputes with Philip. This he did, but the fundamental problem had never gone away. In reality, it was in neither England's nor France's interests for Edward to be king of both nations, and Edward would have acknowledged that his dynastic claim to the throne of France would have been difficult, if not impossible, to assert and maintain without conflict. In later years, he was happy to agree to peace treaties in which his claim was laid aside. But the very fact he had a claim could be used to his advantage if Philip tried to push his overlordship of the Duchy of Aquitaine, and thus his overlordship of Edward himself, too far. In order to counter this dynastic vulnerability, Philip had adopted a strategy of sustained diplomatic antagonism towards Edward. First, he had claimed in 1331 that the form of homage which Edward had paid him was insufficient. Next, he had refused to restore the parts of the Agenais seized from the English by his father. Then, he had insisted on supporting the Scottish claim of David II and had used Edward's championing of Balliol to accuse him of threatening the crusade. After that, he had threatened to invade Scotland and had embarked on a policy of naval piracy, killing English sailors, looting English ships and burning English ports. Now, he claimed Edward should not shelter d'Artois. As each dispute had been smoothed over by the patient negotiators, Philip had found another. While Philip may have benefited domestically in the short term from such a policy, he was like a boy showing off to his peers by prodding the English lion's rump with a sharp stick. That the lion did not immediately turn and bite, as Edward would have preferred, is probably due to three factors. These were the repeated advice of the English Parliament and councils of magnates that the French question should be settled by negotiation, not war, Edward's higher priority on asserting his Scottish rights, 
and a series of papal initiatives, including the Crusade. Philip's demand that Edward should surrender d'Artois was thus just one more in a long string of grievances. If there had been no d'Artois, war would have been no less lightly, as some other problem would have been put forward by Philip as a justification for taking action against the English king in Gascony. As it was, d'Artois was the best excuse Philip could find. On the 30th of November 1336, the Pope wrote to Edward stating that Philip could not receive his peace envoys as Edward was protecting d'Artois. At the same time, the Pope asked Edward to send him, the Pope, envoys equipped to agree a peace treaty. In the Pope's view, all was not lost. Even if Philip would not negotiate, the Pope would. Edward would have heard the Pope's view of the d'Artois dispute in December 1336. Such a contrived reason to break off diplomatic relations would certainly have infuriated him, and may well have convinced him that Philip was bent on war. This in turn may have triggered Edward's next series of innovations. Out of the despondency of his brother's death, his infant son's death and losses in Scotland, he saw a chance to recapture that enthusiasm and chivalric brilliance of the early 1330s. Philip's antagonism had the result of challenging Edward to concentrate his attention and the bulk of his resources on France. It was exactly what Edward needed to enthuse himself, his court and parliament, and thus the country as a whole, into purposeful optimism for the future. The seeds of the new initiative probably were sown in the days around his brother's funeral. On the 23rd of January 1337, almost immediately after his return from Canterbury, Edward held a council in the Tower of London. Gascony and Edward's claim to the French throne were again discussed, but, as before, his councillors urged him to seek peace, not war. English interests, it was said, would be best served by reinforcing the English fleet and building a league of allies against Philip, as Edward's grandfather Edward I had done in 1297. Edward listened and took these debates into Parliament with him in early March 1337. The first day of the Parliament, the 3rd of March, was momentous. Edward raised his six-year-old son, Edward, to be the Duke of Cornwall. Never before in England had there been a duke. The title was connected solely with continental possessions. But in the wake of his brother's death, Edward had the idea of endowing his eldest son with the richest available earldom, Cornwall, and giving him the preeminent title among the nobles. In this, he was emulating his grandfather's creation of his son and heir, Edward II, as Prince of Wales. Edward could not pass on that title in good faith, knowing his father, who had retained the title Prince of Wales, was still alive. So he did the next best thing, a royal dukedom. All the chroniclers were impressed, and almost all recorded the creation. The Parliament of March 1337 was radical. Innovation loomed large. The ban on all exports of unworked wool proposed in late 1336 was reinforced with parliamentary support. From now on, weavers would be regularly invited to ply their craft in England and to teach the English how to make cloth. Grants would be offered to entice them over from the Low Countries. In this way, the cloth trade could be developed and enhanced. And to maximise the potential and increasing demand, the wearing of imported cloth was banned, except, of course, for the king and his nobles. No one should wear imported furs unless they had an income of £100 per year. This sumptuary law, together with a similar statute of the previous year, was the first of its kind in England. Although the high income required for the wearing of furs might be seen as exclusive, the criterion is a money-related one, not restricted to the nobility. This permitted rich merchants and their families to continue to wear furs, and thus set men like the London merchants William de la Pole and John Pulteney, whose friendship and finances were beginning to make a real impression on the king, up alongside the barons. In so doing, Edward was extending his principle of inviting leading townsmen to tournaments, and enforcing the requirement for all men with an income from land over £40 per year to be knights. A sensibility to the advantages of broadening the upper and middle tiers of the class structure was clearly at work. The major event of the Parliament of March 1337 was not a law, nor anything to do with the wool trade, nor the creation of a duke, but the creation of six earls. This delighted chroniclers, so many in one triumphal creation. It was a clever move. In the past, kings had been dogged by accusations of favouritism, 
but in raising six deserving men to such high status, no one could look at Edward favouring this or that one over the others. Each chronicler dutifully wrote down who received which earldom, documenting their names reverently, as if a new tier of chivalry had just been invented, which is, of course, what Edward had in mind. First and foremost was his closest friend, the 34-year-old Sir William Montague, captain of the plot to capture Mortimer and a war leader at Edward's right hand ever since. He became Earl of Salisbury. Lancaster's eldest son, the 26-year-old Henry of Grossmont, was created Earl of Derby. The 25-year-old William Bohun, another of those who had assisted at Mortimer's arrest, a frequent participant in the Scottish Wars and recently married to the widow of Mortimer's heir, was created Earl of Northampton. Hugh Audley, son of Edward's childhood justicia, was created Earl of Gloucester. Despite being Mortimer's nephew, Hugh had joined Lancaster's attempt to overthrow Mortimer in 1328 and had been unswervingly loyal to Edward ever since, providing him with troops for his Scottish wars and serving in person on the last two campaigns. William Clinton, another of the knights who had seized Mortimer in Nottingham Castle, was made Earl of Huntingdon. Now 32 years old, he also had continued an active military life, being warden of the Sink Ports and Admiral of the Western Fleet during the French raids. Finally, Robert Ufford, who at the age of 38 was the oldest of the new earls, was created Earl of Suffolk. He, too, had assisted in arresting Mortimer. In surveying the credentials of those now raised to earldoms, it is striking how the removal of the dictator Mortimer was a common factor. It shows Edward continued to acknowledge and value the help he had received in throwing off the dictator's oppression. The end of the Parliament was one huge feast. More than £439, the equivalent of yearly wages for about 140 skilled labourers, was spent on this one meal. Edward held a great court for the men, while Philippa held a lesser court for the ladies. Twenty men were specially knighted to mark the occasion. Lord Barclay received his official acquittal of any wrongdoing against Edward II. Two days later, on the 18th of March, grants were dispensed to the new earls and some of the knights to keep them in the style befitting new men of rank. With Edward dining in state, we might fairly see him presiding over a court full of confidence, looking to the future. Yet in reality, it was a court beset by problems. As Edward feasted and his musicians played and the new earls shared his dais, the Scots were planning an attack on the great stronghold of Stirling, and the French king was making plans to confiscate not just a few more English castles, but the entire Duchy of Aquitaine. If anything kept the smiles on the faces of the courtly retinue as they feasted that day in March 1337, it was that in Edward they had a man who, when faced with personal disaster, did not disappear into his own hunched conscience, or disdainfully shun his responsibilities as his father had done. This king faced up to his problems. He even found strength in them. He might have been aggressive, ruthless and dominating, but he could turn his own mood and the mood of the court, and eventually that of the whole kingdom, simply through the force of his will. The Parliament was followed by a flurry of diplomatic initiatives. Even while Parliament was still sitting, the new papal nuncio in England, Bernard Sistra, was dispatched back to Avignon with letters of credence from the King and a spoken message, secret business as is habitually described in the records. Diplomatic exchanges were made with Alfonso of Castile, the elderly and dying Count of Hainault and his son, just in case, and the Counts of Flanders, Gelderland and Julias. Edward sent his negotiators to the Flemish cloth-working town of Bruges, Ghent and Ypres to discuss allowing the purchase of English wool. He sent several letters to the Gascon port of Bayon requesting warships and prepared a defensive strategy for Gascony. He even sent messengers to Philip of France, still trying to find a way to negotiate rather than fight. This was certainly not appeasement, Edward's attempts to build a federation of forces against Philip were not likely to end in a climb-down, and Edward's only compromise was an offer to give up d'Artois if the man was given safe passage to his trial and Philip gave up his support of the Scots. But neither was it hankering after a European conflict. Considering that the French had burnt Portsmouth again and attacked Jersey during the Parliament of March 1337, Edward's final attempts at a negotiated settlement appear very restrained. Edward's busy diplomatic embassy, led by Henry Burgersh, Bishop of Lincoln, William Montague and William Clinton, Earls of Salisbury and Huntingdon respectively, 
were given the task of presenting Philip with a series of demands to permit diplomacy to continue. They were not welcome to proceed into France. Instead, they remained at Valenciennes, dishing out royal grants and pensions to all those who might prove useful, until a grand meeting of diplomatic representatives took place there in early May. Straight away, the battle lines became clear. Louis, Count of Flanders, stood resolutely in support of Philip of France, and, like Philip himself, failed to attend the diplomatic party, although both men had been invited. John of Luxembourg, King of Bohemia, also refused to desert Philip. On Edward's side were the Count of Hainault and his heir, Edward's brother-in-law, the Count dying just after the meeting, the Count of Gelderland, Edward's brother-in-law, the Duke of Brabant, Edward's first cousin, and a host of minor counts and margraves. Berg, Julius, Limburg, Glaive, Mark, and Namur. Peace was discussed, and the intransigence of the French king examined. Then, seeing as Philip's allies had not sent representatives, the discussions turned to war. Edward's representatives took the lead. Edward would pay handsomely for the support of the other nations if war broke out. Even Edward's close relations were promised large amounts of money. William Montague himself had some doubts about the strength of the coalition, and he was not alone in thinking that the German princes were only after Edward's gold or England's wool, which, for the cloth-working towns, was just as valuable. The Pope was also inclined to think the worst of the German prince's love of money. But nevertheless, the negotiations continued, and towards the end of May it was clear that a military alliance had formed against France, led and financed by England. Edward remained at Westminster until the 3rd of May. That day, he began to head north with his army at a huge speed, reaching York in time for him to dine with Richard Berry and the Earls of Northampton and Gloucester on the 11th. The infantry with him were forced to march night and day as he raced towards Stirling Castle, the strategically important fortress now besieged by the Scots. Edward saw an opportunity to engage them in battle, and if not defeat them permanently, at least to do them such lasting damage that his policy of constant attrition would be sustained. But in reality, his efforts and attention were now being directed towards the continent, and the Scots understood that they merely had to return to their old tactics of wailing until the English king had departed before they attacked again. Thus, as Edward approached Stirling Castle, the Scots disappeared. They remained in hiding as long as Edward was in the vicinity. With the French supplying them through Dunbar, and Edward having to return south to deal with his alliance, they were safe and free to fight another day. It was while Edward was at Stirling, reinforcing his garrisons and repairing the walls, that Philip finally plunged Europe into war. On the 24th of May, he confiscated the Duchy of Aquitaine. So much attention had been paid to the English province over the last 13 years since the War of Saint-Sardot that Philip cannot have had any doubt as to what would be the results of his action. He had asked the question which could only be answered by force of arms. The question was whether he ruled as an absolute king of a nation which included the Duchy of Aquitaine, as if Edward was just another French vassal, or was Aquitaine beyond his control, absolute rule there being the prerogative of the King of England. Having confiscated the duchy and done away with diplomacy, Philip VI had given Edward the choice of responding with force or forever losing a major part of his birthright. For Edward, who had championed the virtues of chivalry all his young life and who had repeatedly proved himself prepared to use war to attain his ambitions in his other threatened territory, Scotland, this was no choice. It was a declaration of war. Edward immediately returned to the south. He gave orders for his already extensive coalition to be augmented still further. Alfonso of Castile was already at war. Promises were made and pensions offered to the Palatine Count of the Rhine, the Counts of Geneva and Savoy, and more than a dozen others. Most important of all, negotiations for an alliance were made with the Holy Roman Emperor, Ludwig of Bavaria. For Pope Benedict XII, the news that Edward was in discussions with Ludwig, a heretic and an excommunicate, can only have caused him to pull out his hair. When it emerged that Philip too was in negotiations with the heretic emperor, he must have despaired. He wrote in mid-June to the Archbishop of Sens and the Bishop of Rouen to see what they had done to prevent the war. At the end of June he wrote again. He wrote to both kings, urging them to follow the path of peace, and sent a diplomat to each of them in turn and castigated them for being so cordial to an excommunicate ruler. 
but despite his best efforts, it was apparent to all that Ludwig would side with either Edward or Philip and there would be a great European war. All the Pope could do was to try to use his influence to stave off the onslaught as long as possible. In theory, Edward could have taken action with no further reference to Parliament, but he was dependent on his people for finance, not to mention their goodwill. He had carefully brought every single decision regarding war with France to a council or parliament, and always he had abided by the decision not to take military action. Hence in May he had held a great council of magnates and prelates at Stamford to consider the repercussions of Philip's actions in Gascony. In July he held another. Diplomacy had failed. War was now unavoidable. Philip's catalogue of errors was growing longer by the season. He had failed to address the question of the Agenais, had attacked English shipping, had attacked English ports and the Channel Islands, had threatened to invade Scotland, had supported Edward's Scottish enemies and had confiscated Aquitaine. In July 1337, he finally sent an army to invade the duchy and to prize the castles there from English control. His actions had caused several Gascon families to withdraw from openly supporting Edward. Far too much was at stake now to let these matters pass without recourse to military action. Edward was not set on sending an army directly to Aquitaine. Troops to help defend the duchy had been summoned in preparation, but a full-scale attack on the French there would have left England unprotected, and if Philip held back sufficient men from the duchy and used them to attack the coast of England, it would be very difficult to defend it. Besides, Edward could see other options. He chose in the end to send a limited force to the duchy under the command of John of Norwich, and to retain men in England to constitute a second army, to assemble on the borders of northern France and to join with the forces of his many allies, thus directly threatening Philip's kingdom. He also played his trump card, English wool, tens of thousands of sacks of it. For a year he had withdrawn wool from export. Now, directing this precious resource carefully towards the looms of his allies in Brabant and away from those of his enemy, the Count of Flanders, he could enrich his friends and impoverish his opponents. Moreover, he could do this at a profit. Through setting up an English wool company under the oversight of the London merchants William de la Pole and Reginald Conduit, Edward could borrow large amounts of money advanced on an income to be derived from exported English wool. Using his political authority, Edward could ensure that the wool was brought at a minimum price through compulsory purchase and sold at a premium to the merchants in Brabant. The opening hostilities in the war were half-hearted. Philip's large army, under the command of the Count of Eu, had marched into the Agenais at the beginning of July. At this time, Edward's small army under John of Norwich was still in Portsmouth, about to set sail. This left the French free for a short while to attack fortified towns and seigneurial castles in the region, but they did not do so with any great conviction. At the end of June, Edward had sent letters to 67 Gascon magnates thanking them for their loyalty to him, and similar letters to the leading citizens of more than 20 towns. His hopes that they would prove loyal when the French invaded proved well-founded. The fortified towns of Saint-Marquer, Saint-Emilion and Libourne each withstood a brief siege. Other, smaller fortresses did not, but they were cheap gains for the French. If they fell so easily, they would be difficult to defend when the time came for a counterattack. And Philip was more anxious about the counterattack than he was about the initial progress of his army in the south. The growing awareness that Edward had not sent a large force to Aquitaine but was holding back, probably to attack the north of France together with his allies in the Low Countries, severely worried him. In late August, Edward won the auction for the Holy Roman Emperor's support. He undertook to pay Ludwig an advance of 300,000 florins, 50,000 pounds, in return for 2,000 men. It was a very large sum, and he was distributing grants of this magnitude all across Germany, at 15 florins for each man-at-arms per month, 27 pounds per year. He was engaging imperial, royal and ducal support by advancing sums equivalent to 10 months in the field. He was betting heavily on victory. And well he might, he seemed to be emerging as the surer diplomatic hand and the more capable strategist. Philip had invaded Aquitaine, but it was Edward who had taken the military initiative in threatening the north of France, and he had not even left England. Edward summoned Parliament to Westminster to discuss the wars with Scotland and France in September 1337. 
Parliament took the remarkable step of granting taxation for the next three years, an unprecedented grant, which demonstrates how much the kingdom supported his leadership. One of the reasons for this probably lies in Edward's policy of making proclamations throughout the country, so that the people were aware of the dangers posed by French aggression. More than any other previous king, Edward consulted his subjects on his foreign policy, sending out important representatives such as the Archbishop of Canterbury and William Bohan, Earl of Northampton, to explain his decisions to the leading men of the counties. The result was that Parliament agreed that Edward should go take charge of the military alliance formed in the Low Countries and to meet the Holy Roman Emperor Ludwig of Bavaria. It might appear that all was going well for Edward in late 1337, and that the root of his problem, King Philip and Aquitaine, was soon to be confronted. He was about to set out to join with his magnificent array of allies, to attack a strategically indecisive French king who was not prepared to take risks or to stretch himself financially as far as Edward. But not only had his problems of Scotland and France not gone away, he had manoeuvred himself into a position of extreme debt. The three years' taxation would not even repay his borrowing to date, let alone his planned future expenditure. Worse, he had put himself at the mercy of his allies and was now dependent on them doing what they had promised to do. Worse still, he had committed himself to providing men he simply did not have at his immediate disposal. Leaving troops in the north to hold the border against the Scots, leaving an army, albeit a small one, in Aquitaine and securing the southern coast meant that there were fewer troops to take abroad. And whereas he could borrow money from the Italian merchants and conduits in de la Pole's wool company and promise to pay sums he did not actually have, he could not borrow men. His advisers cautioned him that the grand expedition might have to be cancelled. Edward did not cancel, he postponed. At which point Philip agreed to peace negotiations. Edward, too good a diplomat to refuse to deal with Philip, but eager not to lose momentum, up the stakes by agreeing to negotiate, but at the same time threatening to claim the throne of France. On the 6th of October, 1337, three days after he had dispatched a high-level diplomatic mission to France, he issued writs to the Count of Hainault, the Count of Julius, the Duke of Brabant and the Earl of Northampton, appointing them his lieutenants in France, using the title King of France and England in one set of documents and King of England and France in another. Such a declaration was not just a fist in the face of the French king, it was an insult to the Pope, who regarded Edward's potential claim to the throne of France as possibly the most destabilising aspect of the whole controversy. Benedict XII had just written to the two cardinals he had deputed to deal with Edward and Philip, ordering them to proceed to England straight away without waiting for Edward to cross to France. As Benedict put it, For once there, in France, he cannot easily return and the Teutons who want to get his pay would incite him to war. That the spark may not become a flame, the nuncios should dissuade the king from crossing the sea. Now, this new claim to the throne was guaranteed to undermine any possible peace negotiations. It threatened to undermine the basis of French sovereign power, and thus Philip's right to act in Aquitaine. Although Edward did not follow up this claim with further writs issued in his name as King of France, that he had done so once and on an international stage, was enough. In early November, the pressure on Philip increased further. On the 6th, the Pope wrote to him outlining in full the implications of Edward's alliance with the rulers of the territories of Germany and the Low Countries. Benedict informed Philip that Edward was planning to bribe Ludwig of Bavaria to resign his position as Holy Roman Emperor. If this were to happen, Edward would be elected in his place, with command over the German princes. Even if Ludwig were not to resign, Edward was going to be appointed Vicar of Lower Germany, the Low Countries, for life, so as to be nearer to France and so better able to attack it. The Pope further informed Philip that his enemies had gathered men, money and supplies, so that he, Philip, was almost entirely isolated. This confederation, the Pope claimed, was to last for the lifetime of Edward and Ludwig and their sons. Further marriage alliances would bind the Allies closer together. In short, the Pope was outlining how Philip had been totally outmaneuvered by Edward, who now had most of Europe behind him. The only chance Philip had was to make peace with England. As it happened, Edward still faced many problems gathering men and money before he could set out. Without him, the undisputed leader, the rest of the Confederation was worse than useless, a drain on English resources. 
It looked as if William Montague and the doubters would soon be proved right. The heavy expenses of the coalition would hamper Edward's ability to raise an army, not help it. Frustrated by the slowness of gathering troops, Edward ordered the one fleet he had in readiness under Sir Walter Manny to set out and harass the French ships and ports. At the same time, he urged the army in Aquitaine to seize back all the castles and fortified houses which the French had taken in July. On both fronts, Edward's men did his bidding. In Flanders, the tables were almost entirely turned. Eager for battle, Manny's fleet failed to capture Sluis, but lured the garrison into combat at Cadsand, where he won a bloody victory, directing his archers to massacre the Flemings assembled on the shore. Manny's victory did not make anything easier for Edward. He was still short of men. His lack of money was greatly exacerbated shortly afterwards when Bishop Burgersh, in a rash attempt to shore up the alliance, promised unrealistic amounts of cash to the Duke of Brabant and other waverers. They had begun to question Edward's resolve, especially when the cardinals sent by the Pope urged him to agree to a truce and threatened him with everything from excommunication to an alliance between the Apostolic See and Philip. The Duke of Brabant, whose support for Edward had been kept secret, was just one of those tempted to open up an alternative secret diplomatic channel with France. Burgersh panicked and seized the wool which Conduit and de la Pole were about to sell. Needless to say, having no mercantile skill or experience of his own, and no appreciation of theirs, his efforts to obtain more money than the merchants proved an utter failure. Edward was faced with financial disaster. He had already borrowed more than a hundred thousand pounds. But when a king like Edward finds himself in such a predicament, his lifestyle does not alter, nor does his largesse. Edward now rose above his financial problems in style. He paid Sir Walter Manny £8,000 for one single prisoner captured at Cadsand, the half-brother of the Count of Flanders. For his games at Christmas 1337, he ordered an artificial forest foliated with gold and silver leaves, as well as more than a hundred masks, some with long beards and others in the forms of baboons' heads, to entertain the court. For his games on the 13th of April 1338 at Havering, he built mock siege engines and lavished new clothes on all the participants as usual. But the clothes he ordered for himself raised the art of dressing like a king to such heights that previous superlatives are hardly adequate. His hood, for example, was made of black cloth and decorated on one edge with images of tigers holding court made from pearls and embossed with silver and gold and decorated on another edge with the image of a castle made of pearls with a mounted man riding towards the castle on a horse made of pearls with trees of pearls and gold between each tiger, and a field and a trefoil of large pearls embroidered well in from the edge. No fewer than 389 large pearls, three enormous pearls, and five ounces of small pearls were used in making it. The other clothes he and the earls of Salisbury and Derby wore were equally stunning. His only concession to impending financial ruin and his inability to raise enough men to invade France was to answer the cardinals who had so threatened him with an offer not to invade France for two months. Faced with no prospect of obtaining better terms, they accepted. In dealing with the cardinals, Edward told them an extraordinary thing. He claimed that any truce he made with France would have to be ratified by Parliament, because in England Parliament ratified all matters regarding war and peace. The cardinals did not believe him, and presumed that this was merely a diplomatic ploy. But as we have seen, although Edward was grossly exaggerating the legal basis for parliamentary ratification, it was not entirely untrue. Moreover, it was a development of Edward's reign, and very much his own initiative. Mortimer had used Parliament to sanction the forced abdication of Edward II in 1327, but war remained outside its remit until Edward had put the question in 1331. From then on, discussions about whether to go to war or not had never excluded Parliament's voice. Although any real decision-making still lay with the King, Parliament was consulted, if only to determine the strength of support for the King's policy. The other point to note about Parliament in 1338 is that it was no longer just the Lord's temporal and spiritual. Commoners played an increasingly important part. When Mortimer had summoned representatives of the Shire and Towns to the 1327 Parliament, they had been drawn together merely to add weight to the voices of the leaders and to depose the king with the assent of all the people. Edward jumped on this idea of popular assent and encouraged popular representation. 
By 1338, commoners were summoned to Parliament as a matter of course. They met separately to the Lords, and they were not consulted on every matter, but they had a presence and a voice. They presented their own petitions and could expect some answer from the King. In effect, a great bargaining was going on between King and people. The commoners or representatives of the shires and towns, forerunners of modern members of the House of Commons, wanted grievances addressed, but more importantly, they wanted to know that they had a forum for raising complaints. The king wanted popular support for his main policies and to ensure that taxation would be forthcoming when those policies entailed keeping an army in the field or bribing continental princes. Edward was offering parliamentary power in return for money and support and enlarging the representation of Parliament to include the wealthy and important provincial townsmen and landowners, as well as the lords and bishops. In February 1338, Parliament was put to the test. Edward wanted to know whether the representatives of the Shire would continue to support his policies in war as well as peacetime. In particular, did Parliament support his continental alliances and his plans to go overseas, and could he rely on Parliament to promise further financial support? With regard to Scotland, he wanted to know whether he had continued support for his new attack on Dunbar Castle, through which the French were supplying the Scots nationalists. This was held by the fearsome Black Agnes, daughter of Sir Thomas Randolph and widow of Patrick of Dunbar. As the name implies, she was no one Scots lass. As Montague and four thousand men hammered at the gate with a battering ram and blasted away at the walls, this woman yelled defiance from the battlements at the English and berated her garrison, probably terrifying them more than the enemy. A good handful of women in the mid-fourteenth century were truly militaristic, able to inspire and lead their men in battle as well as most men. Black Agnes was certainly one of them. When a boulder from a siege engine smashed into the battlements near where she was standing, she took a cloth and ostentatiously began to dust the walls. Parliament in February 1338 supported Edward wholeheartedly. The Scots were more dangerous than ever. The French were making plans to invade England, and in March the first incursions of their long-awaited onslaught took place. Portsmouth suffered yet again, as did Jersey. Parliament urged Edward to go to the Low Countries to take command of the Allied army and once and for all to bring King Philip of France to his knees. On the 24th of February, the truce was extended until midsummer. The cardinals, the Pope and King Philip were informed. But on the very same day, orders were given for the northern and southern fleets to assemble at Orwell and Great Yarmouth a fortnight after Easter, the 12th of April, ready to set out the following month. And when Bishop Burgersh was given his instructions to take new proposals for peace to the French king in May, the letters he carried were not of a conciliatory nature. In them, Edward addressed Philip as Philip de Valois, he who calls himself King of France, and stated that he, Edward, had a stronger right to the French throne than Philip. He added his intention to conquer his inheritance by force of arms. In confiscating and trying to seize control of Gascony, Philip had thrown down the gauntlet, now Edward picked it up. There were many delays before he could set out. The fleet proved very difficult to gather, with much corruption on the part of the royal officials who were charged with gathering men, money and materials. Edward's haste may have added to the problem, as men stole what they had been ordered to requisition from others for the king's use, and then took advantage of the need for materials and foodstuffs to sell on what they had already obtained. The problem of purveyance the requisitioning of food and other necessities for the royal household became far more widespread as supplies for the forthcoming war were also seized. Edward himself was probably aware of the tension this caused. William Pagula had written in the Mirror of Edward III about the injustice of royal purveyors who would seize a hen from an old woman from which he got four or five eggs a week or take a sheep from a man who had only taken it to market to pay his rent. But Edward was unable or unwilling at present to curb such injustices. He was preoccupied with his political agenda, not the process of carrying it out. In April 1338, he wrote to his friend Sir Walter Manny, expressing his surprise that he had failed to assemble sufficient ships to cross the sea. The Exchequer was still based in York, to which city it had been moved in 1333 during the Scottish Wars, and Edward personally contributed to the inefficiencies by removing himself from business, in late March, he made another very fast journey to Scotland, 
travelling from London to Newcastle in less than seven days and completing the whole journey from London to Berwick and back more than 700 miles in less than 19. If we are right in assuming that this is the secret journey described in the record of his daily almsgiving as taking place in May or June, during which he took the time to go to Darlington to give two cloths of gold spinet to the image of the Virgin in the church there, then we have an explanation for his sudden journey, for it records that the king went secretly to Scotland to visit and comfort the garrisons and commanders of certain castles there. It seems that this was the point at which Edward decided he could spare his Scottish troops no longer, and instructed Montague to call off the siege if the castle had not capitulated by a certain date. In the hope of speeding up the siege, Montague told Black Agnes that her brother, who was then a prisoner in England, would be executed beneath the walls of her castle if she did not submit. She laughed, and replied that if they did she would not be disappointed, for she would inherit his earldom of Murray. There was no persuading this woman. Montague realised that if Edward wanted to campaign in France, he would have to give up Dunbar Castle. Black Agnes on her own constituted a whole second front. Edward, Philippa, their daughters and most of the royal household, their clerks, their musicians, their cooks, their pantlers and butlers, including John Chaucer, father of the great poet Geoffrey Chaucer, and several thousand soldiers, assembled at Orwell on the 12th of June 1338, seven weeks after their original intended date to set sail. Edward gave presents of a pair of decorated silver basins to each of his daughters, Isabella, now aged six, and Joan, now aged four, in the days before travelling. A new seal of absence was struck and delivered to the treasurer, the previous great seal being delivered to the king on his great ship the Christopher on the 14th. The elaborate arrangements for governing England in his absence, the Walton ordinances, were drawn up. John Stratford, the Archbishop of Canterbury, was appointed chief officer during the regency of the eight-year-old Duke of Cornwall. Finally, on the 16th of July, 1338, Edward and his fleet finally cast off and sailed from Orwell, picking up the rest of the fleet from Great Yarmouth a couple of days later. The fleet was numerous and decked out to create the most striking impression. Edward's great ships carried specially made huge streamers, thirty or forty feet in length, showing the royal arms as well as those of St. Edward, on Edward's own ship, the Edward, St. Edmund and St. George. The largest of all was decorated with the life of St. Thomas and was seventy-five feet in length. This probably adorned the mainmast of his great ship, the Thomas. On the 21st, the royal entourage landed at Antwerp and was received by Edward's allies, all assembled for the occasion. His first night in Brabant was far from a comfortable one. The entire household had to flee the building they were staying in as it burnt down. The new leader of the great confederation of allies against France found himself and his pregnant queen fleeing from their beds in their nightshirts and being accommodated at the Abbey of St. Bernard nearby. The fire was not an auspicious start to the campaign. Still less auspicious, after the formal greetings, was the Allies' support, or rather their lack of it, which may be accurately characterised as a hesitancy to go to war. Edward was of the opinion that he had paid them well. He wanted to know when they would be ready for action. In particular, he planned to lead a preliminary attack on the Combrese region, which bordered on the southwest of Hainault in the next few weeks. His allies dithered. They pointed out that much money had been promised and little had been delivered. They wanted to see his gold before they committed themselves to fight for him. Edward, regarding it as a royal prerogative to distribute largesse without checking his balance of accounts, had to face the fact that they would not be persuaded. They would not fight Philip for prestige alone. The problem was, as Edward knew, that he had very little actual gold. Edward could still raise money, but it was soon apparent that it would be years, not months, before he could meet his debts in full. Furthermore, he had not just to meet his debts, he had to show his allies that he would go on being able to meet them. The Bardi and the Peruzzi banking houses were called upon and advanced a further £8,000. Paul de Montefiore, an Italian administrator and trusted confidant of Edward, raised another 8000 William de la Pole advanced eight times this amount against promised wool customs, Sir Bartholomew Burgersh, brother of the Bishop of Lincoln, set about raising money through loans from continental and English magnates with the king. He and Paul de Montefiore mortgaged quantities of royal treasure, including Edward's great crown of gold. Nor was this the most desperate money-raising measure undertaken. 
Back in England, his government licensed the clergy in Devon to start digging for buried treasure. No reports of treasure survive, but somehow enough money was raised to fill the royal coffers and to sustain obligations and payments of more than £400,000 over the next year and a half. While all this was going on, the Holy Roman Emperor also had begun to have doubts. It was suspected that Edward had promised more than he could afford to the lesser lords of the Low Countries and Germany. It went without saying that he would be even more at a disadvantage when it came to paying for the services of the Holy Roman Emperor. As a result of this information, no doubt passed back to him from his first-class intelligence network, Edward seized the initiative. Rather than wait for his money-gatherers to make careful apologies for him, he had a brief meeting with several of his diffident allies, paid them some small sums, and then took his essential entourage quickly down the Rhine to Cologne, instructing the rest of his household to follow by barge. Entering Cologne, he ostentatiously gave money away, making small but careful donations at the houses of all the orders of friars in the city, offering oblations at the shrines of the cathedral, including the shrine of the three kings, where it had been prophesied that he would be buried. To the cathedral itself, he made the very generous donation of £67.10. shillings. He spent the night in Cologne, and then next day was off again, on his way down to Koblenz. On the 30th of August, he arrived just outside the city, and stayed on the island of Niederwerde, awaiting a response from the emperor. In the meantime, he sent gifts to the emperor and the emperor's wife, Philippa's elder sister, Margaret. Edward's judgment had been good. His instinct to take immediate action to secure support proved decisive. Through lavishing money publicly on people, living as sumptuously and ostentatiously as he could, and through paying the emperor the next instalment of his treasure, he forced Ludwig's hand. With all his subservient princes and petty kings present, Ludwig could not possibly go back on his earlier agreement. Any thought he had of reopening the auction for his army was ruled out, as Edward's presence and very high profile demanded an immediate and public response. The affirmation which Edward sought, an official position to confirm his leadership of the Allies in the Low Countries, came on the 5th of September, when he met Ludwig in a great ceremonial meeting in the marketplace at Koblenz. The two leaders processed into the cathedral, and Edward, dressed in a robe of scarlet, sat at the foot of the imperial throne. The emperor himself sat in splendour, wearing his crown and holding a scepter, with a naked sword held aloft behind him by Otto de Kirk. Edward could not resist one show of independent pride, refusing to kiss the emperor's feet. But this irregularity was quickly smoothed over, and with most of the great men of Germany watching, Edward was crowned vicar of the Holy Roman Empire. This new title was worth more than gold to Edward. It was pure and powerful propaganda. That he understood this is evidenced by the fact that he had fifteen rich robes made in advance to be worn by the Emperor, himself, the Duke of Brabant, and twelve other noble leaders of England and Germany. Two days after his coronation, the resplendent King of England rode back across to Antwerp, arriving there on the 13th of September. Five days later, he summoned all his allies, or rather his new subjects, to attend him at Herk in Laos to hear the imperial letters. On the 12th of October, they gathered in the town hall. The walls were hung with rich and fine cloths, like the king's presence chamber. The king himself was seated five feet higher than everyone else and wore his new golden crown. He had the official letters of office read out, appointing him vicar imperial for life, lieutenant of the Holy Roman Emperor. His wars were to be treated as wars of the empire. All those subject to the authority of the emperor were to swear fealty to him. The war against the French in the Combrésie would begin the following summer. After all the solemn celebrations, Edward returned to Philippa, now eight months pregnant, at Antwerp at the beginning of November. On the 6th of September, the day after his coronation, while still at Koblenz, Edward commended the services of one Nicolas Blanc de Fieschi, master of a certain galley lately sent to him in England, and at the same time released the man from his covenants agreed in Marseille with Nicolonius Fieschi on Edward's behalf. Whatever the task for which Nicolonius had engaged Nicolas Blanc, who was probably his nephew, it was now finished. It so happens that this coincides with the arrival at Niederwerder of one Francesco Forsetti, or Forzetti, probably a member of the Forzetti family of Florence. The reason this deserves notice in a biography of Edward III is that with Forzetti was a man called William Le Gallet, William the Welshman, 
who calls himself the father of the King of England. It appears likely that on the 6th of September 1338, on the island just north of Koblenz, Edward finally came face to face with his father, Edward II. The meeting had been planned well in advance. Edward II, as William the Welshman, a name reflecting his one remaining royal title, Prince of Wales, had originally been taken to Cologne, where Edward had visions of meeting Ludwig, but due to his need to meet the Emperor sooner rather than later, he had gone straight on to Koblenz. Hence William the Welshman had to be brought to him by his minder, Forzetti. That Edward had either directly or indirectly deputed Forzetti to bring his father to him is suggested by his description as a royal sergeant-at-arms on this, his first appearance in the royal accounts. Sergeants-at-arms were middling status, well-respected men, superior to esquires of the royal household but less important than knights, expressly sent on missions to do the king's personal bidding. So it seems likely that it was on an island in the middle of the Rhine, near Koblenz, that Edward met his father again. And the meeting went well. Forzetti was paid in advance for the expenses of looking after Edward II for three weeks in December. Of all meetings between members of the royal family, this and its follow-up in December must have been the strangest that ever took place. Indeed, the whole story of Edward's survival is so amazing that historians have normally refused to believe the evidence and preferred to present the whole episode as a series of hoaxes and deceptions. It goes against the grain of professional sobriety to present such an extraordinary story as fact or anything other than the plot of a 19th century Italian opera. But this was neither a hoax nor a deception. Edward had last seen his father in 1325, 13 years earlier, when he had still been king and when Edward himself had been 12. In the months afterwards, his father had written letters to him which, although they did contain shards of 